and good evening ladies and gentlemen we are back for another episode of the total football analysis podcast women's football podcast rather um episode eight we are once again we apologize for being a little bit late but um it's just been again it's just one of those weeks you're sitting in quarantine you're sitting at home work catches up people's schedules are off it's weird we're even like it's 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 schedules a bit more off even though you're at home most of the time now it's just one of those weird things but um it is what it is anyway um joined here by gavin as always how are you doing my man can't complain how's your weekend been yeah not too bad just you know the usual sit at home all weekend and uh i just kind of decided you know let's just let's just relax had a had a bit of an fm oh i say tournament but you know we tried what we could with the guys at tfa and um i won my match so i'm gonna say i won three one on aggregate i did win three one on aggregate i had a great squad actually it was it was it was um and i think i ended up with um i don't remember right now but i had a i, I like had theo hernandez at left back i had Ashraf hakimi at right back upa Meccano and uh <clears throat> And uh, Bastoni at centre back, you know, and and Anthony Lopez at, at, at you know goalkeeper, you, you know, impenetrable defence. And then you had like Isco as an attacking midfielder. So you know things went well. Things went really really well. Um. Anyway, we're not here to talk about fantasy draft. Uh, we're here to talk about, uh, women's football. Um. So today's episode is going to be centred around. Well, we know the all football has been obviously on hold till uh, this global pandemic is over. We, we anyway, a few weeks ago, Gavin and I wrote a couple of articles on what we expect um, two of the NWSL teams to, to kind of line up and look like uh, going forward into the 2020 season and kind of how they've done over the, over the draft in the last uh, <clears throat> month or two. So I have covered uh, the Chicago Red Stars and Gavin has covered last season's winners, the North Carolina Courage. So... You know, without further ado, let's we're just gonna roll into it and Gavin will start with the uh the courage. Yeah, all right. So I think obviously the first thing that I think about and I think a lot of pretty much anybody who follows kind of the NWSL thinks about when they think about the courage is um just kind of their signature box midfield structure. Um so that was definitely the highlight of how I centered the piece writing around it, just kind of talking about, you know, why is it so successful, what it offers to them, um, just kind of how Paul Riley utilizes it. Um, but I also wanted to look a bit deeper, you know, like there was, they've, they've been super successful, but, you know, they had plenty, I believe, I believe they had a losing record against Chicago before they beat them in the playoffs. Um, so, I mean, they were definitely, while, while they came out victorious at the end of the day, like there was definitely still plenty of stuff for them to look to work on moving forward. So that's what I wanted to highlight in this piece. Um, but in terms of how they're going to look whenever we are finally able to get this season started, they only really had one major uh, departure over the summer. Um, Heather O'Reilly actually retired. She's actually taken up a assistant coaching role at the um, – University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which funnily enough is just right down the road from me. So that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, me too. So they also, they went ahead and made four selections in the 2020 um, 
Super Draft, I believe it's called. Um, the biggest name that they brought in was actually Allie Watt out of Texas A&M. Um, they picked her with the sixth overall pick in the draft. They actually moved up so they could select her. They really liked what she could offer. And I think looking forward into next season, she's she's a striker. I think she's going to add a lot of competition for Williams and McDonald up top. So that'll make it interesting, making sure that, you know, competition for places is always staying high. Um, and as well as that, you know, she comes in and there's not any kind of pressure on her to come in and produce immediately. You know, she can take a year or two and she can learn from the likes of these fantastic players that Courage has um, and then kind of grow into her own player from that. So going back to that midfield structure, um, they kind of, it's based off playing two lines of two. Um, on the deepest line, you have O'Sullivan and Mewis. Um, and they kind of offer very different things depending on you know, the situation. Normally, Mewis will always stay deeper. She's kind of the orchestrator in front of the defensive line and behind the rest of the attack. And she just kind of sits there as a metronome and just keeps play going and acts as just cover for any time possession is lost. Um, you'll see O'Sullivan doing a lot of that, but she's kind of given the license to be able to move forward. Um, one thing you normally will see her doing is picking the ball up in deep areas and going forward and trying to draw out a press with her dribbling abilities before opening up space for a teammate. Um, because North Carolina are so dominant, they're very very used to having teams set up in very deep blocks um, when looking to defend against them. So having her ability to be able to try and pull those players out um, is very important in terms of that kind of structure. And then ahead of them, you have um, Dabinia and Dunn, which are, those two are the heart of everything that North Carolina Courage do. Um, and obviously, Dunn needs no introduction with her achievements with the U.S. women's national team. Um, and it just kind of goes to show just her flexibility that she's sitting here playing such an attacking and pivotal role for the courage, and then she goes on international duty and plays at left back. Um, it's really just kind of amazing. But when they're in these areas, both of them play extremely centrally. So they're... and that kind of goes hand in hand with how the strikers play, which we'll get onto in a little bit, but they sit in between the um, last two lines, the midfield and the defending line of the opposition. And they just slowly roam around without the ball and try and find little pockets of space to pick up possession from a pass from Mewis or O'Sullivan or one of the center backs. Um, because there's two of them right in that small little space right in the middle of the pitch it's very difficult for defenders to be able to mark them properly because they're able to interchange so quickly and so easily um and they just cause all kinds of havoc for what defenders have to put up with um so given this when they get these ball in this position one thing we see the attackers do is actually spread out extremely wide um it's pretty often that we'll see each striker playing in kind of the half space between the fullbacks and the center backs of the opposition, or even sometimes on the shoulder of the fullback. Um, 
and this just kind of tries to make it so defensive line can't collapse centrally on uh, Dunn and Dabinia and make it make it possible for them to have the space to be able to have the effect on the match they're looking for. Um, we especially will see this in like counterattacks and stuff like that when they're looking to get forward and they have room where they can run forward. It immediately, as one of the central midfielders pick up the ball, McDonald and William are splitting out wide as far as they possibly can. Um, I put one of the examples in my piece of that where it was actually, I believe, um, in that case, it was Williams that picked up the ball in possession. And she picked it up in her defensive third and had plenty of space to run forward. And as soon as she did that, McDonald just went to the very right-hand side of the pitch. So the fullback had a decision to make. As Williams is running um, diagonally towards the um, opposition's left back, towards this right-hand side with McDonald, the fullback has to decide if she does she wait and stay with um, the player out wide or does she move in and try and close it down? And Williams just kept dribbling it forward and forward and forward and finally made that fullback commit to moving inside. And literally, as soon as the fullback makes that step inside to defend against her, she releases McDonald out wide. McDonald takes his touch and then passes it across, and Dabinia has an easy tap. And this was this specific example was three minutes into the championship game against Chicago. And just perfect example of everything that they're looking for in terms of just attacking with speed, moving players out of position, and just taking advantage of the spaces that they're given. Um, in terms of their defensive scheme, you know, being such a dominant attacking team, they have to make sure that their counter pressing setup is, or rest defense is just set up to be able to deal with any kind of counter attacks that come their way. Um, as we talked about, I think in our last podcast or one before that, um, we both had Dal Kemper in our teams. And we were picking our best eleven in that three-four, one formation. Um, she she needs no explanation in her abilities, and she is such a huge reason as to why the Courage were able to play so aggressively, put so many numbers forward. Um, but we'll see a lot of typical things that you see from a lot of teams with the Courage. Um, one often thing we see is, is depending on what side of the field uh, the ball is on, you know, the opposite side fullback normally will look to tuck in next to Mewis um, in midfield as O'Sullivan's kind of forward um, and kind of create their own box in front of the two center backs. And this just kind of allows just that kind of extra protection in the event of something happening because obviously when you're Playing with so many high players up or players high up the pitch, and you get attacked. You know every team is going to look to go straight forward, and the best place you can do is to slowly move them out wide and just kind of pin them in using that um, touchline as basically another defender, um, and taking that time and making sure they do that allows your um, teammates to be able to get back into position and be able to reset yourselves. Um, so that's definitely a major thing of uh, how they like to set up. But 
one thing that stuck out to me was just every single player is just fully committed to how they play. Um, I, one example I found in the in the picture was, or found for the piece was actually done running all the way back from an attacking midfield position um, into her final third to make a tackle when Sam Kerr was in on, um, I believe Dahl Kemper was the only one back. Um, Dahl Kemper used her ability to be able to kind of force Kerr to take her time and not be able to get around her, which gave Dunn enough time to be able to move back. But it, it's, it's a big mentality thing of just that no player is bigger than the rest. And I think you see that in a lot of like big sides, you know, I think for a lot of people, Liverpool in the men's side will be that team that sticks out in terms of, you know, full throttle all the time. Everybody's going, trying as hard as they possibly can. Um, and I think you see that a lot with the courage. Um, but when I went and did this piece, one thing I wanted to focus on a lot was just, you know, moving into this next season, how can they possibly look to improve? You know, what, what do they need to do to make sure that they stay on top? And they, you know, I think they win it for, I think it'll be the third time I believe in a row. Um, and pull it up. One thing that I noticed was, you know, in, in situations where they were struggling to get a, be able to break down sides, they were their their formation was actually working counterproductively against them. Uh, when you have so when you have these two midfielders, the attacking midfielders, so centrally, it wasn't giving them the width unless they pushed both fullbacks forward as much as possible. Um, but even when you do that, you have the you run the risk of being susceptible at the counterattack. So both fullbacks weren't able to provide the width at times that they needed to because they couldn't move forward to be able to give up their uh, side like that. Um, so one thing that I definitely looked at was the idea of having, you know, Dunn and Dabinho working and almost playing one in a central role and one in a wide role at times if it called for it and almost playing what I called it in the piece was just kind of an asymmetric position or system where, you know, you send one fullback super high up um, while allowing one, um, one of them to invert and be able to hold that defensive structure. And to counteract that on the other side, you know, you send one of those wide midfielders out. Yes, you're losing that extra body in midfield, but you know, with the combination of O'Sullivan and one of Dunn or Dabinia, and then you have your two strikers, you know, you still have more than enough players to be able to make an impact in that center of the pitch. And I think that's one thing that they can look to to kind of implement going forward in games where they're struggling to break down teams. Uh, a common thing with the courage that I saw was they like to blitz their team, their opposition, like very quickly, you know, it's very common that you'll see a game where they're scoring the first five to 10 minutes. You know, they come out right out of the gates. They're really getting after it. Um, and it's after that, if a team can survive that period of time without conceding a goal is where you start to see North Carolina kind of struggle. You know, they go, they start 
getting into their super um, possession-based style passing around, and, you know, they start to struggle to break teams down. And so I think this could be a, definitely a look that they could look at, you know, going into next season is possibly a different way <coughs> to kind of break these teams down when they don't get that first goal in the first few minutes and force the other team to be able to tr- – or force the other team to have to try and play to get anything from the game. So, but it was extremely fun to do. You know, it obviously the courage being so close to me personally, I'll definitely be going out whenever all this stuff, you know, finally dies down and sports start coming back up and going down and watching them play week in and week out. And I'm very excited to see how they do this. Well, I was, uh, pretty detailed uh, explanation there but um one that is that makes uh, complete sense um just kind of going back over uh you know a couple things that you said i i definitely agree i i i mean i covered a couple of the courage's games last season and definitely thing that i kept kept looking at was the the two strikers just kind of splitting away and one kind of going into the half spaces going through the wide areas and kind of making it um making it wide for the team while the other striker and a combination whether it was Dunn or Dabinia kind of running in with the other striker into the box kind of creating the um creating the numbers in there but um so what would you would do you think they would still continue doing that like would they in the proposed solution that you had let's just say they, they kind of go with it and they push one of the two wide was the fullback and then you move like you said done out to the wide areas if one of them has the ball and they're pushing out wide do the two strikers then still kind of provide another wide passing option or do you think then both strikers just start going for the straight for the uh for this 18 yard box i think it would depend on i mean each situation obviously but i think it's something you'd see depending on what side of the pitch the ball was on um that opposite side striker you know getting fighting that width but that's closer to uh, or same side striker, you know. She'd probably be looking to make that run in between, like the into the half space channel between the fullback and the center back, or trying to make that run off back of the center back into the center um, kind of goal to provide an option for a cross. Um, and then obviously the one midfielder staying inside, you know, Dabinia or Dunn, you know, providing that either second-hand run off, you know, that delayed run into the box or as a pass-back option to be able to um, show, like, maybe the edge of the box. Fair enough. That makes um, makes some sense. But no, um, I, 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 de- I definitely enjoyed watching them as well and, and, and watching the, the final against, uh, against Chicago. I mean, Chicago were a team that really, uh, they, they dominated a lot of games last season. They, um, I mean, you, you you owe that to the brilliance of Sam Kerr, which we'll get into in a, in a little bit. But um, it's just I mean in the final, just the courage, just you know, tactically to just manage to uh, to hold on and 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 you know finally get that um, that win against uh, against Chicago. And I think the main kind of point there was to kind of keep Sam Kerr quiet when you got that box midfield who can kind of cage in, and even if you stop her supply through Yugi Nagasato. Who I, I mean, I think she's provided about seven assists to Kerr last season. It was it's important to kind of close down that uh, that supply chain, you know, and and 
kind of renders Kerr a little bit useless. I mean, obviously, she's a much more complete player. She can drop deep and she can collect possession herself and run run towards goal, which she did. But I think a lot of her, a lot of the work uh, comes from that midfield. And if you can kind of block them out, and, and especially if you can stop Juliet from kind of dictating play from deep uh, in terms of receiving the ball, receiving the ball, holding it up, and then kind of assessing her options to kind of, you know, uh, recycle it and, and and give it out to the appropriate players. I think that plays a huge role, and and that was the role between Dunn and Davinia, who had to uh, who had stopped it. And I think obviously Dunn would have uh, a first hand experience playing for the U.S. national team um, <coughs> with her. So you know how how important she is to the system, and and if you can stop Ertz, even though she is the deepest player in midfield, you kind of almost negate everything that happens in front because while you know, Colaprico and um, you know the other players in midfield, or Zabroni or whoever, um, they they um, they are they are great ball players and they they can pass the ball and they can run, but they're a bit more uh, direct with their running. They're not much. They're not you know they're not the best passers. I mean, at least they're not as good of a passer as as Ertz. And I think Ertz is I think the most intelligent player in that team. So you stop the supply there. You kind of uh, you know you kind of stop whatever they do going forward but that's a good segue into uh into the red stars now i may have slated them off already not a great start for team about to cover but you know we'll uh we'll, we'll talk about it it's good to, it's good to talk about the pros and cons though i mean that's kind of how you've got to assess a team at the end of the day um so you know last season you know they obviously the show red stars got to the final they were hoping to make their you know, get one step closer after five finals to finally go ahead and win it. But, you know, they um, they lost again and, and, you know, they have to go back into the new season uh, to do it all over again. And, you know, they, they scored 42 goals last season and they con- conceded 32 in the process. So scoring goals wasn't a problem last season. And, I mean, yes, they let in 32 goals, but, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's it, 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 a lot of those goals could be stalked by some better defending and some, and, you know, and, and from set pieces as well. So that, that I think that'll come with time. Um, obviously, next season, they um, they don't have uh, Sam Kerr anymore. So that replacing her is a big, big issue, which we'll get into in a little bit. But looking at the draft and how they wanted to move ahead and maybe replace Kerr and, and, and you know, who, how did they pick up? They they picked up um, a couple of players. So they picked up Rachel Hill. Um who was the 19th overall selection in the draft, and the and they took um, they they took in exchange for that they took uh, from Orlando they took the th- in exchange for the third and 26th overall selection in the draft they were able to get Rachel Hill so they really rated her highly, uh, and they got her there. Um, they then did some more business on the first day. They gave away their fourth and fifth first round picks, plus allocation money to Sky Blue for its second and third pick, and they quickly traded away their second pick to Portland for a, the 15 and 16 pick plus allocation money. So it was a lot of <clears throat> changing of hands in terms of the, the slots that they had and the money they had. And they, they eventually picked up Julia Bingham uh, and Virginia's Zoe Morse, uh, and then Duke's Ella Stevens, Yale's Ariel Chevron, and um, and they picked up a player called Mackenzie Doniak uh, earlier in the uh, earlier in the season, and oh, not to not to mention Kelia Ohai. Not sure if I'm saying that right, but um, so they said they did some business in the draft. They did pick up like three, four players and a few defenders, um, 
uh, Kalia Ohio actually came in from the Houston Dash, and they 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 exchanged her with uh, Katie Norton, who went the other way, and the 18 selection in the in the draft. So they made some moves, they made some changes, and I think they definitely want they're definitely wary of uh, Kerr's departure. So the general structure of the team. Kind of they, they they liked lining up in a four two three one system for most of the time, and it, it, the back four five kind of remained the same with the listener and goal. Uh, you had Morgan Bryan uh, called up. You have Morgan Bryan in midfield, uh, um, kind of hanging around as a defensive midfielder. But you had Juliet, you had Katie Norton, you had Sarah Gordon, Casey Casey Short, Tanner Davidson. Generally, those are the players at the start of the season. But uh, Norton, after a few poor performances, was dropped. And Julie Ertz was actually moved from a midfield position to center back. And kind of for the remainder of the season, they kind of put her there. But then it kind of created a rejig in midfield, uh, in, in defense, actually, where Gordon moved out to, to fullback with Casey Short on the opposite side. Tierna Davidson, usually at left back, moved into a central role. And partnered her up with Short. So, uh, sorry, with Ertz. So you had a back four of Nair, Short, Ertz, Davidson, and Gordon, um, which kind of worked well. I mean, after looking at it, they, the leadership of Ertz in midfield, the size of Davidson, and you got the athleticism of the two fullbacks. It kind of helped with them being able to go forward in the wide areas and keep keep a solid line in you know at the back. Um, <clears throat> Further forward, you kind of had eventually uh, Daniel Colaprico and Morgan Bryan as a double pivot. And the front four consisted of uh, Vanessa DiMonardo as the number 10, Yugi Nagasato out on the on the left, Savannah McCaskill on the right, and then obviously Sam Kerr taking up her place as the number nine. And here really the the whole emphasis was on, on the build-up play um, where they wanted to get quick exchanges, you know, transition to the thir- to the thir- through the thirds, but they wanted to use their their fullback. So every time the ball would come out th- from defense, and whether it would be the center midfielder, whether it's Colaprico or Ertz at the time, or Morgan Bryan in this situation would drop in, and they would kind of collect possession and try and find either the center midfielder who would then in turn find a fullback, or they would go straight to the fullback, and whether it was Sarah Gordon or whether it was uh, Casey Short, they would both find their way forward and try and t- transition themselves into into the middle and final third. If they could go all the way on their own, fantastic. If they couldn't, what they would do is usually the two wide players. Now they aren't Nagasato and McCaskill aren't traditional wide players, so they kind of played a little bit of a narrow shape as the two wide players, and they would drop into narrow mid uh, central positions. Uh, in in the half space, what would happen is that if whichever fullback had the ball, they would then play exchanges with the narrow fullback. Now, either that ball would then go to Di Bernardo, who would then you know obviously either switch play, or they would play a give and go between the fullback and that winger, and, and kind of push forward, and then either getting in crosses for Kerr if they were on a counter attack or if the defense was you know uh, a bit too high, or they would then play it into a more central area, allowing. Nagasato and McCaskill trying to use their skill in 1v1 positions and, uh, you know, ability on the ball to kind of get the ball towards uh, Sam Kerr. So they relied a lot on these half-space crosses. Rather than getting it on the byline and crossing it in, they would get, get it into the half-space and give balls over the top for Kerr because Kerr, obviously, she can do everything. She can head the ball in. She's great aerially. She can take it to feet. She can drop deep and take it. So you can kind of play it to her in any way, shape, or form, and she would be able to kind of, you know, Receive supply as in as in how she got it. Um, 
in, in some ways, when they were releasing possession and when the central midfielder would drop in, they kind of almost reminisced of a 3-4-3 system that I think I, I referenced in my article, which basically this meant when they were able to kind of put more bodies in midfield, uh, which is where they wanted to control and have possession and make sure that they don't get caught over there and get this across to the you know to the final third. Um, and they would basically, every player would try and position themselves in a, in a way where there would be uh, a passing option uh, available to them. So now if we move into the attacking structure of the team based off what we know about their general structure, um, we kind of touched upon it with the two wide players uh, looking to feed in Kerr, sitting in a, in a, in a narrow position. Um, a lot of the times when teams decided to play deep and they played a low block, Kerr would have to kind of drop in, sorry, drop into midfield and collect possession to start playing as almost a link player there. What, what this would do would, um, A, would give the central midfielder a passing option. It would drag play, it would drag defenders and midfielders out of position from their original places. And this would kind of allow the two wide players to kind of then take advantage of the spaces that Kerr left in behind. So I think I referenced the an image here in my in my piece where Colaprico, if I'm not wrong, Colaprico, uh, Morgan Bryan actually drops in, um, Kerr drops into Morgan Bryan and they play a give and go, but then this kind of gives the opportunity for Nagasato to receive the ball in space in between the lines uh, and is able to play Kerr into, into a position where she's, you know, Kerr created the gap in herself between the two centre-backs. And you know this, and then kind of the the finishing touch was was because of Kerr's great feet and her great uh, vision in in being able to kind of go past players and knowing where and when to to shoot, and that that kind of resulted in a goal. But um, the attacking combination with three of the four four thinking players involved was was beyond none. They almost kind of knew exactly what they each wanted to do, and I think that's one hallmark of the system that that that. Every player knows what role that they ha- what role they have and what they need to do in it. So they kind of know, like with a player like Kerr, and I know I keep harping on about Kerr, but, but she was the the heart and soul of this team uh, from an attacking position. They know that wherever they're going to pass, wherever they need her to be, she's going to be there. So the gamble to kind of pass it into areas where you wouldn't normally want to pass it, you can kind of put it in there and know that Kerr will more than likely get on to get on the end of it. Um, and that's kind of how they played uh, from a forward position, depending on whether uh, they were, uh, you know, they're coming up against a low block or they're coming up against a team that had space. Obviously, if they had space in, in behind, like we said before, the fullbacks would push push up and they would get crosses in from either the wide areas or they would come into a more into the half space and kind of cross it in from there uh, quickly to give Kerr the aerial advantage against the center back, isolating them in the 1v1 positions. So, you know, after all this, um, we we go into the defensive structure and this I think is where if anything they're a bit stronger. And obviously they have you know one of the world's best striker on the other side, but defensively they've got the U.S. national team's keeper. They've got Julie Ertz in there and they've got the best fullback in the league last season in Casey Short. She had I think six player of the player of the month the nominations in the side, so more than any other player. And then obviously they had. Uh, they had Tanner Davidson and they had Sarah Gordon, who both reinvented themselves as the season went on. Um, and what they kind of wanted to do, they they kept a close compact shape. They the two fullbacks were trying to would try tuck in to create smaller gaps to kind of have you know the opposition didn't have space to kind of penetrate in between. So off the ball, they would kind of try and be as narrow as possible to kind of 
stop runners going in from behind and they were okay to let the ball go out wide because they knew that they had enough they had the pace from the fullbacks to be able to do both go out wide and push and they knew that the two defensive midfielders that they had um could do a job obviously you have Colaprico and Morgan Bryan who are both athletic uh so they were both able to kind of cover any spaces that were there if the opposition went wide. Sometimes they would let the uh, let the ball go wide because they knew that they had the height of Tanner Davidson and they had the um, the intelligence of Juliet to kind of maneuver and, 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 and you know, go airily and, and win possession in the air. Um, the two, the, the two, and like we said, the two wide players attacked, you know, uh, the two wide attackers actually, not even the two wide fullbacks, the two attackers, they kind of served a dual purpose. Obviously, we've talked about them going forward. But their role defensively was to track back and defend the wide area. So they would kind of double up with the fullbacks in case the, the opposition really focused there. And that would kind of help to negate any of the wide uh, the wide opportunities that the opposition tried to, tried to create. Um, and this kind of co- coincides with their pressing structure where the defensive midfielder uh, would obviously offer a passing option, but at the same time, they that, that, that midfielder would slot in as almost like a third centre-back. Uh, kind of like you talked about with Mewis in, in for the Courage. One of the players would drop in into in between the centre-backs and kind of create that three. So at some points, whether the ball went wide, they always had four, five, even six players at a time in the box to be able to kind of cover anything that came in over the top and kind of overpower whether the opposition threw in one, two, three, four players uh, in the box. Um, And if we look at the stats here, Chicago conceded 1.23 goals per 90 minutes throughout the season, which kind of set the tone for their excellent defensive work. I mean, they ended up with a slightly better defensive, um, average defensive statistics than their opponents, making about, I mean, they made more interceptions, like 54.5 versus 52.5. They had more aerial duels, like we talked about, 44 to 43.81. And they had more general defensive duels at 71.23 versus 69.08. So defend, the defensive stats against their opposition were always better than better than them. So kind of the 32 goals that they conceded is, is you know, of good value. And if you were able to score against them, then you kind of had, uh, you kind of had them, you kind of had them, you know, caught out in a, in a good move. Um, looking at, you know, looking at one of the pass maps that I had used here, you can clearly see that the two center backs and that one of the defensive midfielders is kind of stationed. They're all kind of, they create this mini triangle. So that in itself kind of shows that they really wanted to have defensive cover at all times with at least three players while the two fullbacks would go up and you've got obviously Morgan Bryan in there. So you kind of had almost two wide players, uh, the two, you know, the two wingers who would play in the half spaces, one center midfielder, Kerr and DiBernardo all kind of, dedicated to moving up front and then they obviously they had the three players at the back and they knew that the two fullbacks could drop back pretty quickly to to create the extra two players so which would give them one two three you know about five players uh, at the back if they were to be counterattacked um and like we said we've talked about uh julie Ertz and you know she's got you know the phrase being at the right place at the right time is kind of what i would use to describe julie Ertz and her performances you know at the back when she had an off night, Chicago had an off night. But when she was on point, which was I would say ninety ninety five percent of the season, they would be on point. You know, she she averaged seven interceptions a game, eleven point eight recoveries per game. You know, excellent positional awareness and and involvement. And uh, obviously, her passing is uh, is is you know second to none. Um, so 
what this leaves us with is how do you how do you replace Sam Kerr? How do you replace one of the best strikers in the world who gave you eighteen goals last season with you know with, while the other you know everybody else kind of was far and above uh, you know far and below her actually sorry um, so obviously like we said they brought in Rachel Hill, uh, Kalia Ohai, Mackenzie Doniak, and Rory Dames now has a number of choices to play there now. One of the options that I had thought like you can't obviously rely on one of these three to to make up eighteen goals. It's it's pretty difficult. You can't expect that from new players and young players. And the only other thing I could I could think of was okay, why don't you then rejig the the system a little bit? You kind of and I was thinking who was the next best player that they had who was able to kind of replicate a part of Kerr's game because Kerr, like we said, is a link player. She's a complete forward. She can she can compete aerially. She can link play, she can drop deep, she can kind of do it all. She can receive the feed, run in behind. Now, who can do a part of that aspect that then maybe Chicago can play off of? And I thought, why don't you then play with a false nine with Yuki Nagasato up front, acting as this player who's able to kind of... She doesn't have the pace, but what she can do is she can kind of use the um, use her movement and positioning to kind of pull players out of position to allow then possibly get two wide attackers who are a bit more proficient in scoring and, and, and good on the ball to kind of get them, give them space in behind to kind of push in. So, for example, if you had Di Bernardo and, say, uh, Yugi Nagasato playing as the 10, 9 and 10, you can then kind of have Nagasato playing off of the one of the wide players and, say, Naga, uh, and say the fullback if she can collect the ball from uh, Di Bernardo, pass it in back to uh, Nagasato, Nagasato then pushes that out wide to one of the wide players, you've then created three players to potentially run in behind. You've got the wide attacker on the right, you've got the wide fullback who who can potentially come in, and you've got one of the and you've got obviously the number ten Di Bernardo to kind of run in behind as well. So you can kind of create three to four players kind of running in behind if you have just you know. Uh, Nagasato and possibly maybe one more player to kind of play off of, whether it's a central midfielder or whatnot, to kind of play some passing so that players are attracted to the ball and to the players and they leave in these small gaps for these quick players to kind of run in behind. Now, what happens when these teams play low block systems? It's going to get a little bit difficult and this is where Chicago need to come up with maybe another striker who's a bit more proficient in the air and can kind of uh, targeted there. And if I, if I look at Nagasato's stats, she has 76.9% of her 1v1 battles when she was playing as an attacking... She won 76.9% of her 1v1 battles when she was playing as a left attacking midfielder, which means that she can beat a player in 1v1 situations. And she's also had 3.75 dribbles. So it's not like she can't run with the ball. She can engage in these 1v1 battles. She can... Uh, and and she did this as a striker in six games that she did play as a striker last season. So it's not an unproven theory. It's something that will need time and it will need uh, getting used to and the players will need to, to, to understand how the system will work. But it is it is an option that they can uh, they can they can go with and and uh, you know we can we'll have to see next season how they get along. Yeah. So I mean, I think the biggest question I want to ask to get your take on with these you know, talking about like the changes they could possibly make. In your opinion, do you think Chicago will be able to, you know, ride the loss of Sam Kerr and continue to challenge the courage like they did this season? Or do you think it's going to take a year or two for them to kind of recover and get back to, you know, that consistent 
on the top and challenging? Um, I'm going to have to say as much as I, I really like this team and, and I want them to do well, I think I have to go with the assessment that it'll take a season or two of adjustment. I, I don't think they will be available to immediately challenge the courage again, considering they've lost their best player. Let's put it this, let's put it straight. They've pretty much almost, they've lost their best player and it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to kind of, you know, replace her. I mean, you've seen it even with Lyon this season, that when they lost out of Hegerberg to injury for the rest of the season, they were, I'm not going to say they were struggling, but I'm saying to kind of having to play between Eugenie Le Samer and, and Nikita Paris up front, they've had to adjust and change their game. And obviously they've got some fantastic players and the rest of the team to rely on. But, you know, the difference that Ada Hegerberg just makes being up front is a whole different story to then not having her there. Uh, and I think this is the same case here where Kermit is such a big difference. She could play three, four different roles as one player that... Um, you essentially need a couple of players to replace just the roles that she was able to complete. So I, I really don't think this is something that they can they can easily fix. And now unless they come up with, they find a player that they can bring in and who can replicate this or someone steps up to the plate like massively and, and delivers. Um, but other than that, I, I think it'll take a year and, and, and I think the courage might just be in for another title. Um, I don't know who else can challenge them right now, especially with Dabinia being the unofficial uh, 2019 NWSL Player of the Year, if you remember that saga that happened. There was a whole Twitter position. but um, And then you've got, obviously, Crystal Dunn, who is in the form of a life, and McDonald's and Williams are two fantastic strikers, and they're both on the cusp of uh, you know the national team. Obviously, McDonald's been, was at the World Cup as well, and she's pretty experienced. So, yeah, and obviously you've got the best center back, I think, um, uh, along with Ertz uh, in Doll Kemper at the back. So, and you've got obviously the be- one of the best upcoming, you know, left backs in in the league as well in Jalen Hinkle. So, I mean, look all over that pitch. I I don't see any holes there. You know, it's it's um, it's 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 crazy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much the answer to that. Yeah, I think I have to agree. Very early. And bold prediction from the two of us is courage will do it again. <laughs> watch this backfire! Watch this! Watch this backfire in like uh, six months' time. We're like Chicago top of the league. You know they've got like you know a seventeen goal striker in place, and you know and and courage is sitting in third, and you know none of the players are doing anything. I mean, weirder has happened. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> anyway, um, have you got anything else to add? I think that just about does it. Fair enough, man. That was a that was a good one. We uh, hopefully we uh, people uh, everyone enjoyed it. Um, obviously, we're back on the airwaves now, and hopefully, we will be able to make this a little bit more consistent over the next couple of weeks. Um, apologies for the delays, but uh, yeah, hopefully, we're we've got a you know an exciting guest or two that we want to bring on in the next couple of weeks. So we're just waiting on availability. But if we can get them on, you'll be in for a long discussion in the next couple of episodes on a couple of pieces that we've, uh, what we're doing right now. And um, I think, I think it'll be really enjoyable for, uh, for everyone. And uh, it'll be a mix of the F, you know, WSL and uh, some European, uh, European teams out there. All right. It's been fun. It's been fun. Anyway, we're signing off. Uh, you know, follow the channel, you know, follow the channel. 
at Total Analysis on Twitter. As always, we appreciate your feedback and your uh, and your lovely comments. Uh, you can follow both of us at Real Gavin Ford and at KUNABD. Uh, you know, at our socials. So, you know, hit us up. What do you think? How do you like the episodes? And uh, you know, what do you want to hear from us? Uh, and what do you want us to write about? Just you know, hit us up, and maybe we can uh, we can look into it. But anyway, till next time, we'll uh, we'll be seeing you.